Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview style podcast on the MedTech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Joe Rafferty at VezTech discuss the bridge from angels to venture capitalists, how exit values drive early stage investing, great technologies and bad leaders, his strategy behind raising capital and how much, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Joe Rafferty. Joe, thank you very much for being here with us today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. Very excited to have you on here today. We've had some history together. You're going to help tell that story of where you are with the company as of now, where the company's going, but also some of the fun journey that you've had over the past few years with your company, Vestec, which we'll also be digging into. And so the reason why we're here is I've talked to medtech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as investors from around the world. And I've discovered that there's really no silver bullet specific formula or magic about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. And especially, I think we've proven that out since we're over the 100 episode mark on the series thus far. So, so my goal here is I, I did want to extract some of your insights, your stories, et cetera, to be able to demystify this process and to help innovators in medtech benefit from the information. And the audience that we have are medtech entrepreneurs and investors, and I'd like to share your stories and advice in order to help our listeners learn from not only your stories and advice, but also help even more specifically that first-time founder or CEO who literally has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is from learning from people who have been there and done that, just like yourself. Before we get into all that, and thank you very much again for being here, I wanna open up with some questions just to kind of warm up the, the conversation. So the first one being is, in your opinion, what is the lifeblood of a med tech startup and what keeps startups alive in this industry? Yeah, uh, Gio, Avani, uh, thanks so much for the uh, the opportunity to come and talk with your your audience. It's uh, it is very humbling, and um, I would have to answer that question uh, that you just asked with one word and and courage. I think is what comes to mind. Frankly, uh, from a founder standpoint, from a from a an inventor standpoint, um, as you know, many of these inventor founders are are years and decades ahead of of the industry that they're trying to, to bring new technology uh, into. And, uh, and it takes an awful lot of courage, uh, frankly, as a CEO, to build a team that wants to come and, and, and uh, abandon whatever security they might have and, and have the courage to, to join uh, a vision and, and to build something from nothing is, um, is 
one of the observations I've made um, and, and trying to sell that vision. I've, I've told many, many folks that uh, I was told years ago, your only security in life is your ability to perform. And, and when you find these, these wonderful, exceptional people that know that they, they can do a job and have the courage to do it, well, you know, there's a, a, a great team coming together and, and the folks that have the courage to do that. Does that make sense? 100%. And, and I have to give a plug because I love that word that you use, courage. Um, my favorite author, a, a book, a series of books that he's written, I've actually tried to read, I believe, every book that he's ever written, Ryan Holiday. I'm a huge advocate for Ryan Holiday, and I was fortunate enough to go to his bookstore in Bastrop, Texas, uh, right outside of Austin. But he's now writing a series, and the first one of the series, he's a huge advocate for Stoicism or the revival of Stoicism. And his first book out of the four book series is called Courage. And, and it's it's kind of a self-help book, but also it's through storytelling. And Ryan Holiday is, is just an amazing, youthful author reviving this philosophy of Stoicism. And his first one was Courage, which I read last year. And anyone, anyone who, who, who needs a bit of courage or wants to start a med tech startup company, I heavily recommend at least reading something like that. And that supports Joe's uh, opening statement of you need a lot of courage to to run, build, and start a med tech startup. So thank you for that. My pleasure. The second question I have for you, this is more of like a juicy question where I think I'm just interested in your, your question or your, your response rather, but what is the hardest part in your experience about building a med tech startup? Um, I, I think there's some misconceptions about what a CEO and, and what building a med tech startup is all about. And, and I'll frame it by another word, uh, humility. And, and that is, uh, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And, and when the crown gets heavy, you have to be humble enough to ask people that have been there and done that. Um, obviously having the opportunity to discern, you know, who you want to ask, you know, what is the fruit of their, of their labor and, and, uh, and being humble and open enough to ask some really dumb questions and some, some questions that create a, a significant vulnerability. However, when you, when you do that, you'll be surprised how many folks are, are very willing and genuinely um, uh, able to provide uh, coaching and, and direction um, in a very, very well-intentioned way. So that's been one of my, my, um, uh, my objectives, both with the board, with investors, with, with uh, people that have gone before me, to uh, to keep that humility and and ask the, the dumb questions, so I like this very philosophical approach that you're taking too. The next one, uh, if you could come up with examples that may be mechanical or black and white in nature, but what is the best and worst piece of advice that you've received on raising capital? Yeah, um, Bruce Chuck and I had a, a great conversation very early on and we were talking evaluations and he said very simply doesn't matter what you think and and in fact just push that aside he said until a, a vc or or an angel group slides a piece of paper across the desk with a number on it it doesn't matter what you think because the market is going to price that deal and and that's the only thing that's going to price the deal and, and and until you kind of walk away from your own presuppositions you're going to get a, you're going to get bloodied. And, um, and so that was, uh, that was one of my, my big ones. Um, and, and then um, the other big learning was 
um, and, and we've all kind of gone through this in our lives, when, when you get leveraged and, and you don't have leverage, your options go away. And so whether you're raising funds or, or doing first in human cases, you have to have options, especially in this COVID era, era we've just gone through these past couple of years. Uh, some call it the sales funnel, some call it the, the uh, contingency planning. If you don't have multiple options for funding, if you don't have multiple options for, for first in humans, those types of things, then, then you can get leveraged and you can take some bad money. That cliche about bad money is, is real. You know, who do you want on the board? Who can you work with? Who do you want to work with? Um, if you don't have any leverage, then, you know, you, you get what you get. Um, and, and sometimes you don't have an option. If, if, if it's either that or you don't eat, then, you know, you, you make the decisions you have to make. But we've been fortunate enough to, to provide some option, optionality within our, um, our fundraising. So, so what I, I want to give a part B to this, because th those two pieces that you just brought up are obviously very good pieces of advice that every listener listening into right now should take into consideration and, and also put into use. In your experience on the, maybe not necessarily the worst piece of advice, but just a demystification, something that you had to go through in your journey of, of raising capital that someone did advise you on maybe, or, or it was a North star that you were following and you thought it was the truth um, mm -hmm. only to find out by going through your experience where it's like, yeah, you thought that, but that's just not the way it works. And if there was this demystifying aspect, whether you want to call it the worst piece of advice or just something to watch out for, that's just not necessarily true, but you do hear maybe in council or someone pushing you on your merry way, raising capital, any, any examples on that or anything to talk about there? Yeah, and, and it, it has to go back directly to that optionality, that leverage. Uh, we were dealing early on as we were raising that $6 million A round, we were, we were communicating with, a, 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 I won't name the group, a, a substantial group in addition to another one. And as we, as we walked down the, the uh, due diligence path together, I realized that these were absolutely not the people that we wanted to do business with. And, and that whole adage of trust me, trust me, you know, we're, we're all good friends until you start working through the details of the deal. And then you realize that, um, you know, different people have different motives for uh, and different uh, uh, projected outcomes for doing deals. And, and without that optionality, you know, that, that trust me, we're all good friends and this is going to be the, the greatest deal in the world. And, and then as you get down the road, you realize that um, you better have some optionality or you're going to get, get leveraged. Love that. This one is a nice little feather in the cap for a piece of advice. If anyone else is out there listening and also you have a good recommendation, but in your experience of entrepreneurship, building your company, your career, and obviously raising capital, what book would you recommend our audience to read and why it could be any book or any topic? Yeah. yeah. Um, this, this is a very easy one. I read it early in my career. Um, it's called uh, Man's Search for Meaning um, by Viktor Frankl. And um, it's, it's about the um, concentration camps in Germany, in, in Europe, and um, the motivators that people have for what they do in their lives. Uh, uh, Frankl observed that when, when um, his 
colleagues in the camps lost that that reason for living. They lost that why. And and there are lots of different ways to tag emotion and and meaning to to uh, reasons to live. Once they lost that, then then they passed away. And I think that in life, as we go through and meet people, you you understand and you get to know people that have a a a big why, um, and and where that reaches to within their own lives, within within their own motivation. You know, why are people getting up at four o'clock in the morning to get a six o'clock plane to be in Chicago for a meeting and and be away from family and friends and so on? And it's that um, that why that provides depth and perspective to personalities, so that you understand these these folks are more than just a you know they're not they're not in it just for the money that there is a bigger a bigger why that's going to keep them going you know night day twenty four seven you know nights weekends and holidays because of the why. And so, uh, so that was my big takeaway from, there's a lot of other uh, m- much more subtle uh, messages from, from uh, man's search for meaning, but that's, that's one of the things that I took from the book. I do hate to sound like a parrot and, and just say, oh, I love that. That's great. That's re-. But I don't, I don't have a better phrase, at least right now in my head. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, there was, I think earlier in your career, especially if you're very ambitious and you are in a money-making situation. It's about the money and you do have to put this foundation in your life to be able to then launch yourself off and maybe find yourself in a different way, but at least have that security from that foundation that you initially created in your career that maybe money was your God initially. But um, you do, if, if, it, if you do find yourself, if you do find your why, it's uh, really interesting about that life transformation of you start getting up in the morning at four o'clock in the morning for very different reasons, um, more often than not for not for money for, for right. some for your why which so right. i do love that um, well and that and and that's a that's an interesting dynamic when you're talking to people interviewing people money does something for them yes you need money for for the family for the new baby for education for you know what what does that do with you for your family for your parents for your your grandkids etc and so being able to attach motivations to each individual because you know, your why is different than my why, um, yeah. you know, uh, cello is different than Kelly. And, and, and so you have, you have these different nuances to that. But if, but if I, as a leader understand what motivates you and what keeps you on fire, then, then, oh, well, that, that allows that connection for us to continue motivating each other. I'm with you. Thank you for that. Um, you alluded to this in our, in your, one of our previous questions, or if not the first one, but this whole idea of a job of a CEO or people don't really know what it means to get in there and, and run a company or take on that responsibility. From your from your perspective, what is the job of a medtech startup CEO? And, and what is that biggest challenge of a CEO? Um, have the vision. You, you have to understand where the founders and where you need to go. And, and then set that aside because oftentimes we're, we're all, we're, we're in the seat because we're all a certain type of person. And, and, and then my caveat to all that is while, while maintaining that tenacity is listen. Um, you're, you're listening to VCs, you're, you're listening to engineers, you're listening to uh, angel groups and, and, and market drivers. And, and most of that information is well-intentioned. And, and having the ability to listen and sort um, is, is a key. 
because it's it's when you put the blinders on that you do get sucker punched uh, in this day and age. It's a it's more a frequent thing than than not. But when you're when you're listening and your awareness is is very high, um, people people bring you pearls that will allow you to keep moving forward. And and in my opinion, um, I, I've been blessed. I don't ever have to be the smartest guy in the room because I, I listen to the people that we are surrounded with who are extremely intelligent people. Um, the engineering team, our, our leadership team, our board. I always joke, we've got a guy by the name of Ken Rubenstein from uh, New World Angels. He's a, our, our board representative. Ken is always the smartest guy in the room. He is a nuclear physicist PhD from MIT and he's an IP attorney. So, <laughs> and, and he, is, he is one of the most humble gentlemen you'll ever meet in your life. And, and his, his advice is always, always well-intentioned. So, uh, so listening to people like that and, and allowing the, um, uh, the, the strength and the wisdom of the, of the team to continue moving the group forward. This one goes to your experience of actually having been through the process of raising capital and talking to the various styles of investors, angels, VCs, family offices, whomever. If you had a magic stick, what would you change about the capital raising process from an entrepreneurial perspective? Um, I'm second oldest of nine. Number three of nine was an Air Force officer, full bird colonel, and had a lot of big jobs. And one of the things he taught me uh, from a young age was, um, Joe, if it was easy, anybody could do it. That's why you're here. And I, and I think to appreciate where this VC angel uh, global strategic marketplace is, I'm, I'm a big believer in market dynamics driving the way a business performs. And, and if it was easy where I could flip a switch and say, I know exactly which VCs are looking for exactly what we're doing and they've got money. Well, we can sift that out. It takes some hard work, but you can sift that out. And, and that hard work separates the folks that want to do it easily versus the, the folks that want to actually do the work. Um, and so it, it, the initial impression is I wouldn't change anything because the market drives this market. And, and there are different subsets that obviously the angel groups and, and the VCs and the global strategics, they all have different motivators. Myself as a leader, I have to understand what their motivators are in my, in my communication. I've heard a number of your uh, presentations where, where folks in my seat talk about having 200 or 300 different pitch decks. Well, you're right, because each, each investor has a different why. And we need to understand that going in and so if it was easy, if there was a switch to change, uh, you wouldn't have to take the time and understand um, the, the messaging that really needs to take place. So, um, so again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a market-driven person, um, and, and I, have to, I have to do the work to earn. You know, on the backside, once you've raised the money, uh, slam dunking the, uh, you know, the, 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 the laptop is a really exciting thing. But if it was easy, it, it wouldn't be quite as, as, as big a success or quite a, as an enjoyable victory. So, yes, H hard work and then accomplishment allows for much more enjoyment of your, the fruits of your labor. So I couldn't agree with you more on that one. And, and that's, we've, we've had some entrepreneurs and even investors joke around about med tech should be called hard tech. And, mm -hmm. and it truly is. 
Um, but you know, it does separate out a, a nice category while some people are looking for that magic switch to make it easy. Having those market dynamics does create the, the can versus who really can't or don't want to do it. Or don't want to do it. And, and I, I, I felt very uh, fortunate. Uh, the Phoenix 2022 meeting was just out in, in um, uh, the, uh, uh, the East Bay area. And um, I was very fortunate to uh, attend that meeting. And there are an awful, there were an awful lot of folks there that have significantly more experience in raising funding than I have. And guess what they all said? And, you know, having done this umpteen times, they all said exactly what you just said, that, you know, e even even a CEO from the Fogarty Institute said, yeah, we we pitched 90 different VCs before we found the, the pearl. And he, obviously he's got an open book and, and a lot of warm introductions, but still um, it's a process and, and you have to earn the right um, through hard work to get the funding done. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. We, we've had two of them. I'll just speak on it quickly. Um, we had Dan Lamaitre, who's currently the CEO of Blue and Medical and an incredibly long history of, of executiveship in medtech, very big successes. And also um, Dan Hawkins, uh, CEO and founder of formerly Shockwave Medical or still in existence, but now of Avail Med Systems. And so both of them, uh, legends in, uh, in current living medtech ecosystems, said the exact same thing. I mean, yes, it's nice that you have a network, you can open up doors, you can um, get in front of people maybe even faster than others, but you still have to pitch because each raise is different every single time. Each company is different every single time and no one's just going to hand you a check just because you have a name. So it, it is the, the hard work of doing that. The last, one of the last questions, I think the second last question before I get to what does the name of your company mean is uh, more of a, a fun one to learn who Joe Rafferty is when he's not outside of medtech or when he is outside of medtech, if you were not a medtech entrepreneur, if you were not building a company and that wasn't your why getting up right now, what would you be doing instead if there was no limiting factor? So, you know, if, if money wasn't a, a, an issue and, and just for fun of it, who is Joe when he's not medtech Joe? Well, uh, culturally, our, our family, I'm a second oldest to nine and we all grew up playing a lot of different sports. But I'll, I'll leave that aside. So that's always kind of a, a low level current in the background. And low level is always always a, a matter of perspective. But um, one of the things that, that many folks around the world are, are appreciating right now is that we have a crisis in the United States and it's a crisis of education. Um, oftentimes it's in major metropolitan areas, but um, oftentimes it's in, in rural areas. Um, and Philadelphia, as an example, um, the data from the, the Philadelphia Inquirer would suggest that by third grade, only 30% of those city school kids can read at grade level and, and do math at grade level. And so uh, we've gotten involved with some, um, some schools in, in the Philadelphia area. Uh, they are Catholic schools that, that essentially take these kids that are a couple of grades, that three grades levels back is a, is a challenging thing. But uh, Chris DeRay is the one up in, in Philadelphia. Long story short, they've, they're, they're able to take kids that, that probably were, were going to have a real challenge making it in life, get them caught up, and literally 99% of these kids get college degrees. They get, they get money, and they, and they get into great colleges. And I, I think um, that, that level of crisis is, is only expanding across the country. 
and and if I had more time um, that uh, and 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 had that magic wand you're talking about, that is uh, something near and dear to the heart. It's a nice mission. I, I hope one day after you have a very fortunate, successful exit with Vestec, you'll have the time and can go impact more children up in the Philadelphia or even greater area. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Um, last question right here before we get into who you are. Your company is Vestec. And I want to have a, a two-parter on this. So what does the name of your company mean? How did you ultimately name the company Vestec? And more, more often than not, whenever I see it written out, the name is fully capitalized. I don't know if that means anything or if that's just how legal documents are, but what does the name of your company mean? Is there a story behind the name? And then why is Vestec capitalized all the time? Yeah, um, the uh, the founders of the company came to me with the technology and uh, we thought it could be something really elegant like Google and everybody asked what that means or something very simple. So we actually combined the two. Vestec, our, our technology is vessel technology. Hmm. So hence uh, Vestec. Uh, one of our early advisors who's been in the business for, for many, many years as I was capitalizing the V and so on, he said, no, capitalize everything. It'll, people will be asking, what's Vestec and why the capitals? So get the conversation going and, and create a little bit of additional visibility. So. I like that. That it's a marketing sales twist to starting conversation about building a company from scratch, which very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Lo and behold, the man behind the voice who has been answering all my crazy questions thus far, Joe Rafferty, co-founder and CEO of Vestec. Who are you? Where are you from? How did you build your life leading up to the point where you are now leading Vestec? Just tell us who you are, offline, online, whatever you would like to share so that we can wrap our heads around who we're listening to for the rest of this and who we have been listening to. When we get to you joining and, and leading Vestec, I want to take a quick pause and re-ask the question, what is Vestec? What are you guys building? And tell that company story. But let's first tell your story. Who are you, Joe? Yeah, um, there, there's a, a show on, um, I think it's Netflix, whatever they talk about, the, the Delaware County part of Philadelphia. Well, we are Delco. I'm second oldest of nine kids, uh, very cliche Irish Catholic. I married the seventh of 11, you know, Irish English Catholics from, from Philly. Um, grew up, uh, I laugh, we were, we were carrying golf bags by the time we were nine or 10 years old. So we learned how to pump the pump. And when you pump the pump, money comes out. And if you don't pump the pump, money doesn't come out. So we learned that at a very young age. Um, was tending bar in Philadelphia, the biggest bar in Philly at, at age uh, 19, when everybody was not allowed to drink till 21. So I got a, a very early and, um, and vivid education. Uh, Temple University is, uh, there's a, a little bit of a moniker out there relative to sports that, you know, it is Temple tough. Uh, Temple is a very interesting environment. I enjoyed every minute of my time up there. It's a, a great education and um, and the Robin Hood event, uh, Robin Hood Ventures, who is a Temple group, were early investors in uh, in the Vestec uh, uh, Series A round. So I'm proud of that. Um, we've got uh, four wonderful kids, three fantastic uh, grandkids, married to the same beautiful woman for 42 years. So my you know my my values are very straight facing forward. There's, uh, you know, you, you see what you get. And, um, and I think uh, a lot of our investors and a lot of the people we do business with appreciate that, that 
um, you know, as long as I'm, I'm uh, straightforward and transparent uh, with, uh, with the folks that we're living with, working with, it's, a, it's amazing how things tend to, to work out. So um, our, our neighborhood growing up, there were the Rafferty's with nine, the Doherty's with, with nine, Familetti's with 10. So all of that concentration of ethnicity. Oh, and we were right by the, the, the synagogue and we were right by the Mormon Stake Center. So it was a, a, a very eclectic group. But because of that, there was always some some type of game or some type of competition that was going on, and so that competitive nature was was bred and and um, and accelerated at an early age. So um, lots of lots of different sports and and lots of different uh, activities over the years. Yeah, very cool. Well, congratulations on on forty two years together. That's a, a journey within itself, and I and I have to say, last night. Um, I celebrated my Mimi and Papa's 60th anniversary. They were married at 17 and 19. And um, last night they had four generations at the table that we were celebrating. It just kind of gives a nice beacon of light or North Star to follow that, uh, you know. Well, I have to say, I'm, I'm 60 years is fantastic. I, I'm not that old. Beth and I were both married when we were 12. So that's the only <laughs> way you get to 40. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Well, congratulations again. And, and thank you for telling your story. Leading into now, you obviously leading Vestec. So tell the world, get on a soapbox. And and by the way, I know that uh, you were either trying to be in stealth mode and maybe not anymore. There <laughs> are a couple LinkedIn posts. But if you could, what, what does the world need to know about Vestec? What are you guys building? What is the technology that you can share? And then even just the stage, I mean, how old is the company and then the funds that you have raised? Is it one fund that, or I should say round that you've closed? Just give that whole big picture to us. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, Vestech, it was a technology that was brought to me back in early 2019. Peter Hinchliff, who was the, uh, the president of the Driver Heart Company, reached out uh, and, and connected me with Dr. John Edoga and Dr. Terry Richard. And to their credit, um, 20 years ago, when the EVAR, the endovascular graft business was starting, um, these surgeons appreciated that it was a novel concept, but they understood the physics and, and the disease process. And their comment was that uh, although putting these grafts in endovascular is a great idea, th there's more that needs to be done because they were used to hand sewing these aortic grafts in place in open surgical procedures. And, and their comment to me is that physics is a cruel mistress and, and that you can't uh, argue with physics. And so lo and behold, EVAR is a, is a fantastic um, uh, replacement for aortic tissue. Um, there are two small holes created in the arteries in the groin and physicians, interventionalists put a graft up into the aorta, excluding blood flow from the aneurysm. Uh, the challenge that we've learned is that over time, that aneurysmal tissue continues to dilate and the grafts can leak and move and, and a number of things happen. And it's usually uh, between three and five years, maybe 20, 21% of these patients are going to have a challenge. And, and by 10 years, 30% or more are having a challenge where the physicians have to go back in. You talk to different physicians and they'll suggest that it's even higher than that, but the peer-reviewed literature says those are the numbers. So when, when Dr. Ridoga and Dr. Richard brought this catheter to me, they literally had four nitinol sutures preloaded in this catheter. The catheter can go in 
through the very same sheath that the interventionalist delivered the endovascular uh, uh, stent graft. And we can deliver these uh, sutures through the same sheath over the same guide wire. So it's, it's a very simple process, fits right into their existing workflow. And we can suture that graft in place, much like an open surgical repair, but we're doing it percutaneously. So, so what does that mean? Well, it means that when the patients might have to come back in five to 10 years, they don't have to have a very complex, very expensive, very dangerous repair procedure that once we secure that graft in place, it's done and it's not moving. So that was the conversation and the, and the value proposition that was presented to me by the physicians. I'm fortunate enough that I've been around long enough, could go to some people like Dr. Venki Ramaya, um, uh, Dr. David Deaton, some vascular surgeons that I've had uh, relationships with for years and, and battle test this, this messaging. And uh, they, they both said, everybody I've spoken to said, yes, it's, it's the, the procedure itself needs some significant incremental improvements for patients. And if your device does what you say it's going to do, as Bill Gray from Mainline Health had suggested, why wouldn't all of my physicians, if the hospital is getting paid, the physicians are getting paid and the patients are going to live longer without repeat inter interventions, why wouldn't we do this on every patient? And so it was very, very encouraging in that regard. Um, and, and the cool part is it's a platform technology. There are places all across the aorta, the iliacs, um, the aortic valves, there are physicians that are telling us that they want us to secure these, uh, the TAVR valves and mitigate the perivalvular leaks that happen once the TAVR valves go in. And so uh, platform technology, you know, length, differentiation, size of suture differentiation, we have a lot of, uh, lot of flexibility with the technology. So Very how's cool. that sound? Exciting, huge market. And obviously, I have a better understanding as to your med tech why every day. I mean, you have something on your hands that you're hoping to change the world with. So uh, thank you for sharing that. I wanted just to give a little context on the business side. So you mentioned this was brought to you in early 2019. Is that how old the company is? And then just high level, that's what I'm going to start digging into next. On your leadership of this organization, how many rounds of financing have you closed? And where are you now in terms of stage and status of company? Correct. Um, we got our, our tax registration number uh, September, September 11th, 2019. And, uh, and so obviously there was some work to be done before that, but for all intents and purposes, September 2019 was the, the start of the company and, and the beginning of the, uh, the fundraising uh, happened then. We did a, a convertible note initially some would call it a seed round. Uh, we, we raised uh, almost a million and a half dollars in convertible notes. Um, and um, we provided about, a, I think it was a 5% interest in a, and a 10% discount to the, um, to the Series A uh, uh, preferred equity. And, and uh, that million and a half dollars converted um, when we went to, uh, we closed our Series A round. We also raised, um, Fortunately, a Series A was led by the New World Angels out of Florida, and and you talked earlier about the difference between angels and and VCs. What you may find is that many of these larger angel groups 
function uh, much like VCs do in that uh, there are people that used to give their money. They used to be limited partners within VC groups and give them the money to invest. But now they're making they're making many of their own decisions. And so uh, to their credit, they, they really do function like a VC group in, a, in a, all the best ways. Uh, so New World led our round. Uh, we agreed to take an additional three and a half, but keep it open to four and a half. The anticipation was that we were going to be oversubscribed and we were. We had to turn away money, um, which is one of those cliches, never, you know, never do that. Um, so the good news is um, we, we did have to turn some money away. And, and the real telling um, uh, aspect to this whole fundraising round, this, this $6 million Series A round was um, a number of people that will remain nameless that are uh, physicians in the space, that are salespeople in the space, um, were, were significant investors in the company because they understood this, the challenge that was being addressed by this technology. And so they knew it would be successful based on the, the tremendous need and, and the, patient, uh, the patient problems. So, uh, so anyway, so we raised six um, and, um, and now we're just starting. Um, I've heard some of your, your uh, podcasts talk about the, the, the next round and the VCs uh, appreciating milestone achievements and, and getting um, first in human cases done. And we're in a little bit of that, uh, I'll call it the death valley now. We're gonna do a, a bridge round of about $4 million and that bridge round will fund our um, our several um, first in human cases. We're going to do about fifteen. Uh, Bruce Shook advised us that you know uh, four or five first in human cases are fantastic, and it means a lot. But when you can transition from ten to fifteen, you're in a clinical phase, and the de-risking that that provides, and the inc incremental jumps in valuation that that provides for VCs to de-risk an investment is significant. And so again, we've got wonderful advisors, wonderful friends that give great advice. And so right now we're in the process of raising a $4 million, call it, we can call it a bridge. It's essentially a, an extension of series A. Um, we're selling at the exact same price um, that we, we ended series A at. So there's a huge value there because we've gotten a ton accomplished. And then with those um, 15, 10 to 15 first in human cases, then we'll go back out. A number of VCs have said, get that done. And, and we're very, very interested in what you're doing. Great team, great message, great technology. Uh, just de-risk it for us. There's a lot that I would like to unwind from that. So first, let me just summarize and clarify for all our listeners again. First was a 1.5 million seed round that was done on a convertible note. The next one, and correct me if I ever misstep here, the next one was your Series A that you ended up finalizing 6 million in total. Initially thinking about that it was going to be a 3.5, there was a little bit of potential oversubscribing at 4.5, but you ended up getting six. Correct. And that's, and that's on your Series A. Your seed round was at dominated by angel groups in terms of a category of, of investor, or was there any institutional funding from VCs in that seed round? Uh, that was all individual investments, the, the one and a half million, and um, almost three quarters of a million of that 
came from uh, commercial people in that space. They heard what we were doing and, and they all ran to us. So three quarters of a million dollars of that million and a half was, uh, was individuals that work, that work hard for their money. You know, they're, go, they're, leaving, they're leaving the house at O Dark 30 every day. And they, they heard what we were doing and said, we're in. And then they came in in a big, big way. They said th almost three quarters of a million dollars. And then the other three quarters of a million dollars to bring you to 1.5, those were angel groups. Some, uh, some high net worth individuals and, okay. and things like that. Yeah. So falling in that high net worth individuals, individuals and, and high, and um, well, we can call them angels, I guess. Right. So um, the, the next 6 million was that from angel groups? Because at least, I mean, maybe we can clarify this if I'm misspeaking here, but a high net worth individual on an individual basis, you can call them an angel. Sometimes they all aggregate together underneath an umbrella and they call themselves something, which we'll call angel groups. And they act like a, a herd going together. We've actually demystified that on the series where sometimes they act as a herd. And when they invest, they still are individual line items on a cap table. Other times they come together with an SVP or an LLC, and they invest as a one line item on a cap table together. Um, but there is a, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's a, we can call them angels on an individual basis, or there's angel groups that come together, almost kind of like a syndication of high net worth individuals. Yeah. And I, I don't need to repeat exactly what you just said. That's exactly what happened. We had, we had big angel groups. We had VCs, uh, a couple of VCs, uh, one, two, three, four VCs. Uh, ben Franklin, if you're familiar with them, they're, it's a, a Pennsylvania state group. Um, and and uh, Jen Hart, wonderful person, uh, suggested that um, ben, the Ben Franklin group is now functioning as an evergreen uh, venture capital group right now, frankly. And so we had, just as you described, uh, groups that, that positioned themselves as, as angel groups, but came in as individual entities and, and then others that aggregated. So you're exactly correct, yeah. So then now in this 4 million bridge round after the 6 million series A, two things, are, are you going back to some of the money that you turned away before and hopefully covering that 4 million or are you, are you going out to brand new prospects because? Well, we'll do two things. We'll go back to our series A investors. Um, they've seen the progress we've made and uh, since the pricing of the round is is essentially identical to the uh, the last money taken in in our in our Series A round, um, it's a it's a great value for our Series A investors to come back in, and so we'll bring it to them first, and and let them know. And in addition to that, we'll also communicate again that that conversation I had earlier, the leverage that you you have to keep that funnel full. And uh, we, we don't want to get delayed or hung up. Um, if somebody's very interested in investing, then, you know, please do and do it, uh, you know, expeditiously um, because we have to, you know, you, you want to get the nose sooner than later and, and keep it moving forward. So we'll, we'll open it to our Series A group first. We'll open it to those that missed that Series A round. And, and then we'll keep moving forward with some new, uh, some new angel groups, some new VCs, et cetera. So then when you do close this 4 million bridge, bringing your total Series A to 10 million, um, and you get some of these first-in-man, or I should say multiple clinical first-in-man uh, cases done, leading you to then that next level, is that going to be a clean start 
calling it a series B and going into that big pivotal moment in time for your trial? Exactly. Exactly. That'll be a, a series B and uh, we'll raise $16 million in series B that will fund our 100 patient clinical trial. And uh, we've got a wonderful uh, FDA advisor, Dorothy Abel. She spent 35 years with FDA. She was in the same group that we're petitioning. Um, Dorothy has advised us early and often to communicate with FDA. So we, we actually just submitted our third pre-submission uh, meeting request. So we know that we've got a predicate device. We know we're a 510K. We know it's a 100 patient clinical trial with a 12 month follow-up. We'll consent the patients for five years so that we can collect that marketing data and how the patients are doing long-term. So there's a lot that we know of, and this 16 million will fund that clinical trial, and and you know essentially we'll we'll have all that information. Uh, we're, I think we're talking about the middle of 2025, the end of 2025, to have that all that clearance completed. When all when all goes well, and, and most of the VCs will tell you tell me that the numbers are all wrong. It's just a matter of how wrong. How good are your financial projections and and your cash management, but when when we get through that FDA clearance, we should have somewhere around $3 million left in the bank to do a, uh, I call it a demonstration project to commercialize. Again, make sure you've got leverage. If there's not an M&A, when we've got our FDA clearance, we've got money in the bank, we've got our uh, clinical trial sites that have been using the product, that are familiar with it, uh, major metropolitan areas. And so we'll do a demonstration project of five or six territories across the U.S. and, and grow that out to demonstrate for a potential M&A partner that, uh, that this is a device that the, uh, the strategics will buy, that, that the clinicians want to use on a routine basis. So thank you for those timelines. I, you, you touch base on what the VCs may be expecting. The topic of the hour that I wanted to really get your insight on is We've now covered that you've raised from individuals, high net worth individuals, angel groups, angel groups that act like a VC. Um, you even mentioned some VCs you met uh, with an evergreen fund. I, the one thing I want to touch base on now is the classic institutional VC, the professional investor investing someone else's money in typically a 10-year horizon style fund where Yes, their thesis happens to be involved in investing in medical device or med tech startups. However, their number one focal point is return on investment. They do need to be able to return their fund and make money on top of that initial investment to return back to their LPs, limited partners, in addition to hopefully making some money for themselves. That is that classical VC, not evergreen, but institutional VC fund. All of the other styles of investors that you've talked about, and as you mentioned, especially in that three quarters of a million on the seed side, or your first round that you closed, were people who believed in what you were doing. They were on the commercial side. They ran to it immediately. I want to use the word, there was an emotional pull to get involved in spending their or investing their own money into that vision. Typically speaking, whether it's angels or high net worth individuals, et cetera, there's, we'll use this impact investing or emotional investing. Obviously, they want to do some checks and balances. No one just wants to throw money away. But there's got to be, I know you don't have all the answers. You're that early stage of a startup company. But I do genuinely believe in what you're doing. 
I'm assuming that you guys are going to do well. That's why I'm giving you my money. But I also know that there's high level of risk of being able to invest in you guys because it is that early on. And then, so we'll call that impact and emotional investing from those styles of groups. Then you get into the actual institutional venture capitalists, of which I'm sure that you either contacted or starting to pitch or at least warming up for your Series B that is imminently going to come. In your experience, what are the nuances for all our listeners listening in right now? If you're, if you are Joe raising that seed round of funding time ago, when you did a year ago or plus before the Series A, and you're raising that first round, you're telling an emotional story to high net worth individuals or angel groups or whatever it may be, and all of a sudden you have to switch gears to raising an institutional venture capital round of financing. There's differences in doing that process. In your experience, what are those differences? Yeah, and and I'll be candid. Your your interviews with folks like Louis Cannon and Darshana um, are are fantastic snapshots into how these uh, these professionals think, and and they're wonderful, wonderful uh, um, uh, help to reinforce what you you think you might have known, but but you know now you know straight from the uh, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, I, I think the, the biggest differential is um, w- what is the exit opportunity? And, um, and I've had a, a number of folks say that we, we believe that there's a, an issue. We believe there's a challenge that needs to be re- uh, repaired. We understand the space is, is big and growing. And then help us get our arms around the understanding, the appreciation of what what would a, a Boston, an Abbott, a, a Medtronic pay on an exit? And, and how do we get there? And so I think that right now is a, a message that continues to come back from the VCs. And, and I think it's in every market. What, what, do, you, what do you project an, an M&A uh, number look like? And so that's become part of our slide deck um, relative to who's, who's in this endovascular, peripheral vascular uh, space, what's happened in the last number of years and what are the exit, uh, you know, pre, pre and post. And it's, sometimes it's a lot, of, it's hard to, to put numbers on the pre-money uh, or pre-exit uh, valuation because many of these companies now, um, and Devoro is, is one example, I think it was 360 million. And I don't know that they had revenue. Um, Intact Vascular, you know, Bruce's company, I, I think that they were, $50 million and they exited for 360. So it, it appears, and I it, it could be wrong, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It appears that that, that that exit number is driving an awful lot of that earlier investing. And, uh, and I say this in a humbling way, many of those in, investors say there's, there have been for many years, great technologies, but bad jockeys. So make sure that, you know, in, and, and Joe might be a jockey that they say, Hey, we've got a fantastic technology. The jockey needs to re- to be replaced because we do want to bet on it. And and I, as a as a uh, a CEO, have to be, you know, as as a CEO and a major shareholder, have to be aware of that, you know, possibility too. So, uh, uh, but but the majority of the feedback is de-risk it, get as many humans as you as you can done, and then you know get your get your best. Uh, you know, MBA students from Temple and, and Penn and, and get that valuation, get the exit uh, uh, opportunity quantified to the best you can and, and 
you know, help us understand what the numbers are. Does that make sense? It does. So we, we now really wrapped a, a circle around the VC, the venture capitalist perspective and what you need to do to properly de-risk and get the company ready for that and what they're ultimately looking in. In the early days, when you took this on, when you guys incorporated and got your EIN, September 11th, 2019, um, and then moving into that early seed round and even series A, characterize the experience of having to pitch Vestec to those high net worth individuals or individuals or angel groups? I mean, what was the nuances that they, what were some of the metrics or what they cared about in order to give you a check versus what Darshana over at Catalyst Health Ventures or um, Louis Cannon over at Biostar Capital may have said on their podcast in terms of the objectivity of what an early stage VC is looking for. So give the, the comparison. We know the metrics that they wanna see now. Um, how did you get the early money? What, what was important to them? Yeah, a great, great question. Um, I did a lot. We were fortunate, frankly, that we started this business during COVID. And so from a, a burn standpoint, um, uh, Vestec was, was able to attend a lot of these virtual conferences, these virtual pitch sessions by way of Zoom and, and gain an awful lot of exposure and visibility. And uh, I joke around with uh, Steve O'Hara, who at the time was, he's the chairman of uh, New World Angels now and, um, and uh, was president at the time, Steve led our deal. Um, I, I joke around that many of these angels and, and the angels will tell you that they need to want to see you maybe six or eight or 10 times before they believe you. You know, it's a great story. You may be able to tell it and, and, and be a great salesperson, but they do, if, if they're going to bet and they're going to bet on you as the jockey, they need to see that reproducibility of messaging and, and character, et cetera, uh, before they're, they're going all in. And believe me, it was frustrating. It's kind of like, what, what else do you need to know? And I think they want to see, are, are you tested enough? Are you, are you who you really say you are kind of a thing? Um, before they'll they'll write that check, and uh, as an individual or as a company, uh, as as the individual, because as as Steve O'Hara likes to say, we've seen a, a, a lot of really really good, um, uh, really good technologies, and and then uh, it, it is a bit cliche. Founders oftentimes don't know that they need to bring somebody in, or or the early commercialization. You know, it's it's. As companies go through phases in their existence, there are different skill sets from leadership that are required. And knowing that, knowing where you are within that life of the company and the skill sets that are most important um, allow you to bring in the people that you need at that time in, in the evolution of the company. And, and when, a, when a VC or a, 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 an angel leader says, great technology, time to transition you know that that whole cliche of first first shoot all the all the founders and then second shoot all the engineers you know you got to do certain things and keep moving forward freeze the company and keep moving forward and and that's in in the my coaching from our investors that's a big part of this uh, you know who who's leading it at what stage are they and and you know what upside do they have what what uh, what growth opportunity do they have make sense it does. And I'm sensitive to time. I have two small things that I hopefully can 
shape up before we let you go here. Um, one is more anecdotal specific to you. I, I call it a horror story or maybe an educational story, but something, whatever you can share, your specific experience of raising capital for Vestec in the seed or series A, or even what you're going through right now on the bridge, is there any particular story that you can share that was acute? You're like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Like I, I, I thought that was going to happen and it didn't happen. And then that happened and that either set us back or is it some, it's something that I learned so acutely that I'll never let happen again. Two, two quick stories. The, the one um, when we were raising funds and, 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 you know, thank, thank the good Lord that I had the wisdom to have two potential funders because one led us down a path that was not, not a nice path. It would have been bad money. They would have been bad board members. And, and I got the impression that that was their methodology of, of working with founders. And it was great that we had the new world group there to, I don't want to say fall back on, but to, to be there as good partners. Um, and, um, and then, you know, most recently we are, we're, um, we're getting ready to do our first in human and um, the, the country and the, and the physician and so on will remain uh, nameless, but we had, we had lined up for many, many months, um, a physician in a country and patients that were lined up and, and we had physicians took, took a week off of work in major university hospitals here in the U.S. and we're all flying down to do these first in human and, and they couldn't get the patients consented. And so, the, and, I, and I laugh at myself, if my part of my MO is you have to think in contingencies, everybody at Vestec and, and COVID has driven this, that you have to think in contingencies, the what if then. And we were so confident and so assured that these, these first in humans were being completed that we didn't, you know, we, we let our guard down. And, you know, now we've got half a dozen different contingency sites up and running and much like fundraising, you know, the first one that comes through will be the first one to come through. Um, but we, we can't get hung up again and delay a month or two and restart in that regard. And so that was one of those, you know, hey, I, I trusted myself and, um, and I won't do that again. <laughs> All those listeners listening in, always have a contingency plan. Thank you very much for sharing that with us, Joe. Last thing that I want for the listeners here are in your experience, again, in raising capital specifically for all those first timers that have never done it before and maybe are doing it or about to venture out on their first capital raise, three to five tips, tricks, and guidance points that you would want to share with any med tech entrepreneur raising capital for the first time. It could be small, it could be big, but just what are some of the how-tos to think about objectively when raising capital in MedTech? Yeah, um, I, I've been blessed to have folks like Giovanni and, and others that are very helpful in providing some warm introductions. Um, and, you, and you need them. And you, don't need a, you only need a warm introduction until you in, introduce yourself. And so don't ever be afraid or ashamed to reach out and say, I need to introduce myself. And you'll get a, you'll get a much larger mix of the pie, the warm introductions, and then others. Um, and once you get the warm introduction, you know, can, can they introduce you to other folks? Um, most importantly, I would say, is know who you're talking to before you talk to them. Do your homework. Are they in, in, our, in our case, are they an early medical device? Are they in cardiovascular? 
at, at what stage is the fund that they're managing now? So, so that when you speak to these folks, you're communicating a level of respect that you've at least done your due diligence uh, before you speak to them. And that, that carries a lot of, of weight relative to don't waste my time. When you get somebody on the phone or on a Zoom and, and you don't even know that they do, you know, uh, they're, they're a SaaS investor, not a med tech investor, you know, that, that doesn't go over so well at all. Um, when, when I was out at Phoenix, it was really exciting to see Phoenix 2022, how many folks that are, are so much more experienced than I am lamenting the same thing that it's hard work and, and you've got to, uh, and, uh, our, our teammates at, at Vestec have said that they, that they have a lot of empathy for how hard this job is. And I said, well, um, I, I had the opportunity to reframe that. Because if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's going to be uh, it'll be a, a drudgery. And so you either you either convince yourself and you either embrace what you're doing um, for a lot of reasons, embrace exactly what you're doing and why you're here. Otherwise, you know, get out because it's hard. It's hard and you better enjoy it. You know, you better enjoy the feedback you get from the nose and, and the feedback you get from the yeses. So that that helped. 100%. It accomplished every goal that I set out for on this particular episode. And I want to say thank you so much, Joe, for joining us here. This is Joe Rafferty, co-founder and CEO of Vestec, sharing what it's like to start a company in the medtech space, raise capital, and that journey of life, but everything else in between, and a lot of those contingency plans that we all need to keep on moving forward. So Joe, thank you so much for being with us here today on the MedTech Money podcast series, where we demystify raising and investing capital in MedTech. Thank you so much, Joe. It's an, it's an honor and uh, thank you for the uh, privilege. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.